You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for the Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. to open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11 this summer, where we are inspired uh, by this great cloud of witnesses. Now, the cloud of witnesses are Old Testament characters with great faith, or rather, it's not that their faith was great, but that their faith was in someone great. Amen? Um, the author shares these examples, and we're continuing through them so that we can have the assurance of things hoped for, he tells us. The assurance of what we hope for and the conviction of things not yet seen. And so as we do this, and as our faith grows, this is our prayer together this morning. Um, today's story is a well-known story of faith that I'm really excited to explore with you because it's very fascinating and has a lot of implications, which we'll learn as we go. Uh, it's a short passage, Hebrews 11, verses 30 which says, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after being marched around by the Israelites for seven days. So as of this Sunday, we're uh, moving on from the examples of faith that we learned from Moses. Hands up if you learned about Moses in the past month or so at the gate. Um, Moses was, has many stories of faith. There's one uh, th- part of his faith that the Hebrews author doesn't mention that I want to mention today, and that's that Moses led God's people into or uh, up to the promised land, even though God told him he would die before entering the promised land. How much faith does that take to lead those people, not to mention through the 40 years in the desert, but just in general, towards the promised land, knowing that Moses would die before entering? And of course, this is what happened because God said it would happen. Moses died. And so after Moses dies, uh, they need a new leader. A new man in charge, and the new man in charge is named uh, Joshua. So Joshua is the guy who takes the wheel. He's going to take God's people across the Jordan River and into the promised land of Canaan, which is uh, where our story picks up today. So the first city that Israel encounters after crossing the Jordan River is the city of Jericho, which you just heard or may have heard of before. It's a fortified city, right? It's got walls surrounding it, but what I didn't know about Jericho is it is considered to be possibly the oldest known city on planet Earth, which is very interesting. Of course, it's been demolished, but archaeologists suggest it's one of the oldest cities that we know about. Another random trivia about Jericho, it's also the lowest city on planet Earth. It's 229 meters below sea level, so it's a bad place to spring a leak or to have a a flood. It's the basement of the earth. (laughs) Um, So anyways, interesting. I did not know that, but now we all do. Um, So let's read just the short version of the story of Israel and Jericho, which is found in Joshua chapter 6. I'll be reading a selection of verses, starting at verse 1. Now Jericho was a strongly fortified city. It was strongly fortified because of the Israelites, No one was leaving or entering. And the Lord said to Joshua, Look, I have handed Jericho, its king, and its best soldiers over to you. March around the city with all the men of war circling the city one time. Do this for six days, having seven priests carry seven rams, horns, trumpets in front of the ark. But on the seventh day, march around the city seven times 
while the priests blow the ram's horns. When there is a prolonged blast of the horn and you hear its sound, have all the troops give a mighty shout, then the city wall will collapse, the troops will advance, each man straight ahead. And so they did these things. And on the seventh day, the troops shouted, the ram's horns sounded. And when they heard the blast of the horns, the troops gave a great shout and the walls collapsed. The troops advanced into the city, each man straight ahead, and they captured the city. They completely destroyed everything in the city with the sword, every man and woman, both young and old, every sheep, ox, and donkey. Have you ever been asked to do something that doesn't make sense? My kids have all the time, if apparently. <laughs> this, occurs, this occurs at all ages and stages so far, and I don't think it'll ever go away, but um, I think particularly of the toddler stage, uh, which we have one of right now, Ira's one and a half, um, and Malachi likes to say every day nowadays, he says, is Ira, Ira's a baby, right? Like, well, no, Ira's a toddler, but anyways. Um, so Ira's a toddler, and all of our kids at the toddler stage, they love to climb stuff, right? Which is exhilarating for them and me. They like to climb, and they're good at it. They're skilled for some reason. They're just really good at climbing stuff, so that's what they do, and we help them out as much as we can. What they're not as good at is uh, getting down, right? So going up, no problem. Getting down usually is a big problem. So... Um, so for someone like Ira, when he was a little bit younger and he was learning to climb, he would get up onto a chair or something, and that was the goal. It was accomplished. But then time would come to climb down, and so he'd start to figure that out and scooch backwards. And I swear, with all of my kids, I have the same experience, where they get most of the way down until their feet are about an inch off the floor, and they start to do this, right? They can't feel the floor, but it is right there. And so I'm telling, I have two options, because they're saying, help, help, or whatever. They're freaking out. And so the easy option is to go and you know, lift them down, but then they don't learn how to climb down. So in my more patient moments, I would try to encourage them or, or tell them, like, just let go. You're so close. Or I'll grab their you know, foot and yank it down so they can feel the floor. Whatever it is, I'm telling them, let go. You're just about there. But from their perspective, this doesn't make sense because they're going to fall and hurt themselves. That's what they think. But from my perspective, I'm like, you're fine. You're basically there. Just let go. You've got to trust me. I imagine that the battle plan at Jericho required a lot of trust, a lot of faith in their leader, Joshua, and in God who gave Joshua the plan. Did it make sense to march around for six days and then give a mighty holler on the seventh day. No, it didn't make sense. But is it the plan that God gave them? Yes. In the words of uh, theologian George Guthrie, this group of people, the Israelites, according to the Old Testament narrative, in general is marked by timidity, complaining, and a lack of trust in God or his deliverance. In obedience to another seemingly illogical command, the Israelites marched around the city for seven days. Their obedience was rewarded with the walls falling down, 
Praise God. So Jericho is one of many times, notice how he said, another illogical plan. Of course, this wasn't the first time that God gave them something to do that didn't make sense. It's not the first time where God's ways were higher than their ways, as the prophet Isaiah says. But why does God do this? He, he doesn't just ask the Israelites to obey a strange command because he likes being mysterious or weird. <laughs> there's, there's actually really good reasons why God gives them a command like this one, which, again, apparently doesn't really make sense, but that they have to trust and follow through with. The first reason is one that I would say is more of a practical reason. There's layers to it, so we'll go through it. God hands Joshua and his people this, this strange plan so that they will remember that the whole idea of the promised land is God's and not theirs. The whole idea is God's idea. It's not theirs. If we go one book before Joshua in Deuteronomy when Moses was still around and God's giving his word to Moses, here's what God tells his people. When the Lord your God drives them out before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord brought me in to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. <laughs> Don't say that. Instead, the Lord will drive out these nations before you because of their wickedness. You are not going to take the possession of the land because of your righteousness or your integrity. Instead, the Lord your God will drive out these nations before you because of their wickedness. In order to fulfill his promise, he swore to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stiff-necked people. Ouch. In case they didn't get the point, as God repeated himself Multiple times at the end, he says, again, it's not about you. In fact, you guys are just stubborn. Um, this is a bigger plan that, it, that you're involved in, but it began long ago, and it goes also ahead into God's will. Okay, so this is a theme for God's people as they journey from beginning to end, that they live and die not by their own might, but by God's provision, right? They win the battle by God's power, by his presence, not by their own might. It's God who fights for the Israelites. It's his battle to win at Jericho and everywhere else. He is their hope for the promised land that he is carrying them into. So it seems that to me, as I read this, that without God's battle plan, the Israelites actually wouldn't have even stood a chance of capturing Jericho at all. Archaeology shows that Jericho's toppled walls are over a meter thick, made of stone. Now, the Israelites were numerous, but they weren't exactly military geniuses. That's not, you know, historically they were like herds people and nomads. So, not only that, they weren't very good at cooperating together and actually doing what God told them to do or what their leaders told them to do. For the most part, so far, they've made a career out of running away from their enemies, right? Not going on the offense and attacking. The point is, the only way for Israel to succeed in this battle is for God to win it for them. God's plan is the only plan that will work against Jericho. King David knows this as well. Another king from later on in, in, in God, the timeline of God's people. In Psalm 60, he says... 
Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? And he's playing with God. He says, God, haven't you rejected us? God, you have not marched out with our armies. So give us aid against our foe, for human help is worthless. With God, we will perform valiantly. He will trample our foes. So there's a very practical reason why the Israelites must follow this plan, and it's because if they don't, they're going to lose. But if they do, God will help them win. Now, another reason, which I would call the more spiritual one, and again, they're all connected, but that this is not only a battle of human beings over land, you know, angry people fighting. It's also a spiritual battle, and they need God's spirit to win. Okay? Remember in Deuteronomy, God says it's the wickedness of Canaan that God wants to drive out. He wants to replace not just people groups, but the land with the, the, the righteousness of him, of his glory, of his presence there instead of evil. So God is leading the charge to drive out darkness away with his light. Well, how does he do this? Well, remember, he tells Joshua, put the priests in front with the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark is the repre- a physical representation of God's presence. I'm laughing as I read this, imagining uh, a military saying, put the pastors in front of the march. <laughs> uh, you're not going to win that fight, I don't think. <laughs> um, but, but this is what's, what's happening. The priests are in front. The, the authority of God is with them. The presence of God is with the Ark. And how many times do they march around? Well, for six days they march. On the seventh day, it's complete. Does this sound familiar to us? They're they're marching for the God who created the universe in six days and was complete on the seventh. So they're embodying that character of the one true God coming in to replace whatever false gods and and idols were there. There's suggestive symbolism in the name Jericho. Jericho sounds like the Hebrew word for moon. So there's a good chance that this was a a place of worshiping some some moon god or something like that, a false god that they were coming in to uh, usurp, okay? So we're beginning to see how the fortress of Jericho is not just physical walls to knock down and, and, and trample and take over, but also spiritual walls that were protecting the evil within, right? Jericho is a spiritual stronghold. Uh, Mark Sayers describes it like this. He says, as our strongholds grow and develop, something dangerous can also grow within them. Strongholds enable people to farm in safety and to store seeds and grain. In a broken world, strongholds can protect us and preserve us. So this is fine. It's normal. However, the scriptures warn us that they can also be fertile ground for another more insidious seed. That is the seed of pride. And with the seed of pride taking root, the stronghold becomes an earthly alternative to dwelling in the presence of God. A stronghold is an earthly alternative to dwelling in the presence of God. So strongholds built for refuge have a habit of transforming into seedbeds of pride. And again, the psalmists uh, speak of this when they say in Psalm 52, here's the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches, taking refuge in his destructive behavior. 
but I am like a flourishing olive tree in the house of God. I trust in God's faithful love forever and ever. And here's the option that the Israelites have or what they see as they come to the city of Jericho. They want to be in the house of the Lord, flourishing, not trusting in the evil of their riches. And again, this is a lesson that they're going to be learning for a very long time as they take over the promised land and live there. But for today, because the people of Israel trusted in faith, they saw the victory and God won for them. Now, this is an amazing story, and some of us you know, are inspired by it, but perhaps some of us are not quite inspired yet. And this is because our contemporary minds don't relate to ancient warfare. Like, hands up if you do relate to this stuff. It's funny for you. Some, some people do, because it's interesting, and so you think about it. Perhaps you've studied this, and it's interesting, but for many of us in the world of Starbucks and emails, uh, ancient warfare and bloodshed is difficult to wrap our heads around, and in fact, it's offensive. It, it, it hurts us to read about this, because it's wrong to us, right? It's hard for us to come to terms with the idea that, that anyone would uh, come in and, and destroy anything, much less in the name of God, right? To this, I would say, the, the bloodshed is a natural result of the sin of humanity that God is willing to use as necessary. Warfare is a, a natural result of the sin of mankind that God is willing to use if necessary. And if this short answer is not enough for you, which is fine, it's not enough for me either, I would just simply say that I'm happy to recommend resources which do a much more thorough job of answering this question for us about the violence in the Old Testament. Because as I said, it can be painful for our brains and our hearts to wrap around. But in the meantime, and today, I'll just encourage you to not let your cultural and moral disassociation steer you away from the meaning of this story. It's okay for us to be uncomfortable with what we're reading. It is okay, I will repeat myself, for us to be uncomfortable with what we're reading. Don't run away just yet. Obviously, there's much, much more to say on that. But for today, we'll move on because there are um, immediate lessons as well for us to consider and to take with us as we uh, see the faith of Joshua and the Israelites as they capture Jericho. So the first lesson that I'll point out is for the leaders in the room, which many of us are thinking, Perfect, I don't have to pay attention because I'm not a leader. And I would say, actually, it's for all of you because, listen, you have influence somewhere in your life. We all lead in some area, whether we choose to acknowledge that or not, I believe that we do. So listen, if you were in Joshua's place and you received this word from God about the plan for battle, would you follow through with it and communicate it to the people you lead or would you try to assemble some other more reasonable plan of attack on your own that might sound better to your people? The reason I ask this is because I believe that leaders are often unwilling to follow God's plan, God's will, because it is impractical. 
I think that more often than not, we actually know God's will in a given situation. That's not the question, although sometimes we, sometimes it is, sometimes we pretend that's the problem. But the problem is more so that following through with it is the hard part. That's what we struggle with. Or communicating it to others. That's the thing that we don't want to do, especially when you are in positions of leadership. But listen, when God guides you towards something that feels difficult to comprehend, or perhaps the outcome is still unknown to you, we're faced with a choice where we can ignore God's leading, like I said, and assemble our own plan forward, or we can obediently step out, we can rise up in whatever amount of faith we can muster, and be an example and lead others because of our faith. When God is making a way forward, even when the plan does not yet make sense, we have the opportunity to say yes to God and to trust in his victory. And in the case of Joshua, this is where he placed his faith. His answer was yes to God, and this is worth celebrating and dwelling on as we are this morning. It's huge. Not just for them, but for us. Because the truth is that the same God who broke down the stronghold walls of Jericho is breaking down strongholds today. We serve the same God, a mighty God, who is making a way for his kingdom uh, forward in earth today. God advances against darkness today by destroying the work of the enemy, not, not a human enemy, enemy uh, but our spiritual enemy, the devil, who wants to destroy. Jesus said in uh, John 10, 7 to 10, he says, truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. The sheep didn't listen to them, but I am the gate. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. A thief comes only to kill and steal and destroy. I have come so that they may have life and have it in abundance. So no, in Jesus, we aren't being ushered into a physical kingdom like you know the Israelites were as they crossed the Jordan River, but we are ushered into a spiritual promised land and we're being ushered in. Right, as we respond to Jesus' voice in our lives, as we, as we practice obedience to his call, then we too find this green pasture, so to speak, right? as Jesus uses the metaphor of, of the sheep and the shepherd. On the other hand, God's enemy destroys. He kills. That's his one aim. But we have Jesus, the good shepherd, who came to allow this abundant life for us as we follow him. And so that is who we have faith in. And it is the same God of Joshua who breaks strongholds in our lives through his son, Jesus. Uh, the Apostle Paul picks up on this in 2 Corinthians 10, where he says, although we live in the flesh, we don't wage war according to the flesh. So there's the difference between, you know, if you feel disconnected, that's fine. Because no, our battle is not the same kind of warfare that we heard in uh, Joshua, but it's a spiritual one. 
since the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. We demolish arguments and every proud thing that's raised up against us in the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. All right, so in this line of thinking, we can see Jericho as a picture that very much applies to us today, to our own time and place, as God's kingdom advances in Jesus here and now. So having said all this, I'm going to leave us to seek God, to ask the Lord in our own hearts which strongholds are present that we need him to destroy? What strongholds are in my heart that I need God to destroy? Because there is stuff in our lives that we build walls around to protect, right? But at the root, what's inside there is evil or selfish or broken. And this takes all kinds of uh, forms. This sin can be very obvious at times, whether, whether it's an addiction or, or violence or something like that, like hatefulness, um, that's more obvious stuff. But along with these types of things, there's also less obvious strongholds of sin internally that we are real good at hiding, right? Things like greed or envy or, or lust, gossip, um, pride, even hateful thoughts Jesus teaches against. These types of things, the list goes on and on, doesn't it? These are strongholds that the Lord can and, and will break in us as we allow him to. As well, I would suggest that there are strongholds for many of us that aren't sins. It's not just sin that is a stronghold, but rather things that are a result of sin, living in a sinful world. And so I'm talking about fear, right? Being controlled by fear in a way that causes you anxiety, or, or hopelessness, right, which, which causes us to despair and feel dis, uh, depressed, these types of things. Listen, we have faith that God also reigns in these parts of our lives and is mighty to redeem us from our suffering in his timing, in his power, and for his glory. So these are things to reflect on, right? I'm inviting you this morning to reflect to surrender to the Holy Spirit and be open to the areas of your life that you need God to restore you in. For many of us, there's probably things that you're already aware of, right? That, that you've been praying for God to break the strongholds. Don't stop praying. Don't stop putting your faith in God's power for those things. So this is just a reminder about that. But it's also likely, like I said, that there are things that we're not even aware of or perhaps that we don't want to admit within us that we've walled up to protect that God wants to remove and replace with, with the, the light of his love. So let us approach him this morning with humility and in repentance. And listen, in the same breath as we repent, we rejoice knowing that Jesus' suffering on the cross is the victory against the battle of sin. Just like as with God behind 
uh, Israel at Jericho, they were able to go straight in and capture the city. Jesus is our victory because of his death on the cross and his resurrection. We are on the winning side against death. Hebrews chapter 2 explains this when it says, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was entirely appropriate that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through suffering. So he's talking about Jesus' suffering. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one Father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them, to call us brothers and sisters. Now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these. Jesus was human. So that through his death, he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who were being held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. So today, as, uh, as the band comes up, they're just going to start playing because I do want to offer uh, some time to reflect. Not a long time, but a little to, to pray, uh, to seek God, uh, perhaps to be reminded to place your faith in him, right? It's easy for us to put our faith somewhere else, to get distracted or discouraged and stop believing in the power of God. So begin with that by saying, Lord, I put my trust in you this morning. I confess that I have not been, perhaps, but now, God, I put my faith in your power.